Hello and welcome to my podcast, The Power of Audio, Science and AI, supported by Stockholm Music City. I am Jasmine Moradi, your host, and in each episode, I'll take you backstage to meet with some of the top audio, science and AI personalities in the world. I will interview entrepreneurs, authors, business experts and thought leaders to learn how and why they're so passionate and determined about what they do. I will give you the knowledge and the insight your business needs to succeed with your audio branding. Once again, I get the pleasure to pick the brain of my friend, Dr. Bradley Wines. In episode two of my podcast, I spoke with Bradley about his work in the field of sonic branding at Nielsen Consumer Neuroscience, which you can find on my website. Today, Bradley is the Chief Science Officer at WavePaths, focusing on music in psychedelic therapy. Bradley has 10 years of academic research experience focusing on the uh, psychology and neuroscience of music, including PhD research at McGill University and postdoctoral work at Harvard and University of California. He has been a research associate at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Psychiatry Institution of Mental Health. He has more than 25 scientific publications, including 14 peer-reviewed articles. Best of all, music is his life, and he is a saxophonist. In this episode, Bradley and I are going to discuss the ins and outs of music in psychedelic therapy. With that, Bradley, I welcome you for joining us again. Well, thank you, Jasmine. It's a, it's a delight to be here with you again. And the music therapy is very close to my heart. It is actually the core reason I am so driven about the power of music. And as you know, I'm awaiting to do my master's in music therapy. So let us jump directly into it. We are living in the middle of a pandemic. And I read that before Corona, it was predicted that by 2030, depression would be the leading global disease burden and that mental health costs will increase to $16 trillion. So now with the outbreak of the pandemic, through your lens, how is Corona affecting our mental health and what long-term consequences can we expect? So as you pointed out already, we face many challenges with mental health, uh, not only uh, being that these issues are quite widespread, but they're also difficult to treat. So there are many patients who are treatment resistant with the current treatments that are available. And coronavirus is only making this worse, uh, being that now uh, some of the activities that ward off, uh, for example, depression, uh, just moving around, uh, exercise, uh, being active physically, that is very helpful uh, for keeping people in good mental health. And then, of course, there there are issues uh, related to uh, enjoying physical presence of other people, touch is very healthy uh, and good for us. And so we're, we're missing all of these uh, important parts of, of life that contribute to positive mental health. And so people that are on the margins uh, may fall into uh, mental health issues, not to mention the fact that you know, millions of people are uh, you know, 
uh, without a job who were you know, working before and so on and others who, who still need work. And so I think uh, they're just, it, it's compounding the challenge, uh, absolutely. And, and I remember uh, we in Sweden didn't actually really have a lockdown when uh, things hit in March this year. However, because of uh, my mom is in a risk zone, I decided to stay home during the six weeks at least because we didn't really know what it was and you didn't want to go out and figuring out. So it was better to stay home. And I remember that when I decided to, to, to go out and, and meet with some friends uh, at a restaurant, actually, it was very difficult for me. I felt like in the beginning when I came into the restaurant, I didn't know how to greet people. Uh, um, and, and the second of all, uh, they all were like, come on, go on and sit. And I was a little bit feeling like, uh, no, I, I think I'm going to stand here a little bit. So it can be also like subconsciously, right? Like the fear somehow isolate us. Uh, and, and that can be very, very dangerous. Uh, even if you're not suffering really from the depression, it creates um, bad habits and, and emotions. Um, now you're, of course, you're, you're a doctor. I mean, in terms of... Uh, research doctor, of course, and you've been a research associate at the University of British Columbia, as I mentioned. Tell us how you ended up there and about your experience and the findings in the lab. Sure, sure. And before, just building on your point about how this has disrupted everyday life and speaking with my colleagues in the consumer neuroscience world where we're interested in, in implicit processing and and basically, uh, you know, for example, I was talking with Sarah Yu, who's another cognitive neuroscientist, and discussing how this, uh, this COVID situation makes a lot of what's usually non-conscious conscious. So we are uh, burdened with having to think consciously about all kinds of things we just took for granted before, you know, whether to sit to stand or uh, sit down, whether to you know, shake hands or not, you know, how to greet someone, whether... Uh, you know, to to um, you know, speak loudly or not, or you know, how much can we laugh and stuff? These all these things that just are you know, natural for us, or were you know, are now top of mind. We have to think about them consciously, and so we kind of can sustain a certain amount of burden on our attentional resources. But now that's really been inundated by this additional need to pay attention to everything. So I think that. That also kind of makes it difficult for everyone. And again, people on the margins are going to find this too much to handle um, as far as uh, mental health is concerned. Um, we're all suffering. So, but as far as, uh, yes, so my work at the at, uh, University of British Columbia, so I had the opportunity to do really fascinating research there uh, with Alan Young. Uh, I was also working with Tony Phillips. These are, these are folks uh, who are in the mental health uh, field. Alan Young is now at King's College London in, in the UK, but we uh, did a project where we were interested in neuroplasticity in music. Uh, so neuroplasticity is related to so many different mental health issues. Um, you can think of stroke, you can think of uh, depression, which is related to uh, certain patterns that develop in the brain around rumination and negative uh, thinking. Uh, so how can you change the brain in a way that's more healthy. This study was, was looking at 
how to change epigenetics in the brain uh, using a drug commonly used as a mood stabilizer, as a brain stabilizer for bipolar depression and also for epilepsy. It's uh, called valproate, valproic acid. It's known by uh, other names as well. Uh, but it has this unique feature in that it actually blocks uh, a certain enzyme that prevents the expression of genes. So someone who's taking this will actually have a change in their epigenetic expression of genes related to learning um, that are present early in life in what's called a critical period of learning. So we were interested in seeing, could we take the adult uh, human brain and change the epigenetic state so it's more malleable like it is early in life. And we used as a test for this uh, learning of absolute pitch or perfect pitch, sometimes called. This is where you can name musical tones uh, just by hearing them without any reference. Uh, and you basically have to learn this by the time you're about nine years of age. If you haven't figured, uh, picked it up by then, you, you probably won't. So it's called a critical period uh, ability. It's, it's related to cri a critical period of learning. So we gave, we had, this was a randomized uh, placebo-controlled trial. We had one group uh, of young adult men who took valproate, another group that took uh, placebo, and they underwent training for uh, during a period while they were taking the drug for two weeks. And then they came back and we tested them to see if, uh, see how they did on uh, this absolute pitch uh, skill and found that the Valproate group had significantly improved relative to random chance and also relative to the, uh, the placebo control group. So that was, that was quite fascinating. Uh, and it opens the door to thinking about uh, how we can use epigenetics to uh, help uh, to change the brain in ways that are meaningful and interesting. Uh, this, was, this was quite a, it was a collaboration with obviously psychiatry. Uh, so people that knew about valproate and how to use that safely, but also epigeneticists. And uh, we had Takao Hench from Harvard uh, we had Michael Kobor, who's a, a geneticist. Uh, we had Janet Worker, who's a developmental psychologist interested in critical period learning. Uh, so it was a fantastic uh, cross-disciplinary effort uh, at UBC. And, and when you got those findings, what did you guys do with it? You, of course, you wrote, I'm, I'm sure, a paper about it. But also, there, there's a challenge between research and the real world is that it really needs a bridge in between and how do we take the research uh, we, we conduct and implement it so we can actually reach out to more people and, and help it. What is your take on that? Is, is that possible and how? Yes, uh, so this, this was published. It would be absolutely viewed as uh, a pilot, a pilot study of first exploration into this kind of work in humans. Uh, similar research had been done uh, with animal models uh, by Takao Hench and others, but this kind of brought it into uh, an option for working with, with humans, with people. So um, the next step is going to be building on this, looking at larger samples, looking at potential clinical uh, groups that might benefit. Uh, and basically moving the knowledge forward. Uh, so uh, 
a hypothesis seems to have some support for it in terms of being able to change the epigenetic state of the brain in the adult um, human. And let's see what we can do to help people with that knowledge. And, and looking back in, in the history of medicine uh, and up to now, what have been the traditional methods to treat depression, PTSD, and other mental health conditions? And what are the benefits and the challenges with the traditional methods and with the typical uh, psychedelic therapy uh, process? Hmm. So, so traditionally, there have been uh, behavioral approaches, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy, uh, various kinds that involve uh, interactions between a therapist and a client or a patient. And that is an approach that, that's proven to be valuable. And then there's drug there are drug treatments uh, like SSRIs and basically ways of uh, trying to influence serotonin levels in the brain and other kinds of neurotransmitters that uh, have also proven to be helpful for some people. Um, the, the issue is that uh, there are still people who, who aren't helped by these options. And also we aren't fully, uh, we don't fully understand how these, uh, these treatments work. Uh, so there, there are questions left unanswered and, and ultimately um, we haven't really made leaps and bounds in, in our understanding or in the development of treatments for, for decades at this point, as far as really qualitative steps uh, forward. So that's where psychedelic therapy or therapy with um, as well, psychedelic assisted therapies uh, that involve um, treatments like psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, these are emerging as very promising ways to address these mental health challenges. Uh, yeah. It, it, sorry, what, what are those you mentioned, the three of them? Are there, sorry, are there drugs or are there um, methods? And those how are drugs that are, that are being used quite commonly and that are emerging as uh, quite likely um, uh, uses of, of these kinds of medicines um, in order to help with mental health. And there are clinics popping up uh, all around the world uh, with the ability to deliver ketamine uh, to help people with depression and, and other kinds of issues, psilocybin for uh, treating end of life anxiety, people with a, a terminal illness uh, will be uh, will benefit from treatment with psilocybin. It, it looks like there's, there's evidence for that. Um, psilocybin for treating uh, different kinds of uh, addiction uh, it's even been found to be quite helpful for people with nicotine addiction, which is one of the most difficult to overcome. So several different, uh, several different issues in mental health seem to be addressed by uh, one or more of these uh, drugs that are available. So where does music this role fit in, in, in therapy? Like, can you tell us a little bit back in the history and, 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 and what's going on? Sure. So music has been used uh, ubiquitously with these kinds of treatments. Uh, 
it was used intuitively, but also consciously uh, by researchers uh, uh, that are employing psychedelic therapies. And you can understand why, because it, it basically uh, helps with the setting. So there are these elements that help to make these kinds of therapies particularly effective. Uh, the set and the setting, the set being the the intentions, the mental state of the, the patient, uh, the setting being all of the environmental variables. And uh, psilocybin, for example, basically creates more entropy in the brain. It, it enables connections that aren't usually, usually uh, possible uh, to occur in the brain, and that creates this potential for neuroplasticity, openness to new experience, change in the way the brain works. Uh, hopefully in a positive way. So being there's all this kind of new chaos, you could say in the brain or entropy, uh, having some structure that's very positive and supportive in the environment, which you can control uh, is helpful. And music is a wonderful way to do this. A lot of these therapies involve having your eyes closed. Uh, so either with a uh, some kind of mask or, or even you know, with, with just the eyes closed. And so visuals uh, aren't uh, the ideal way to, to control or provide structure. Uh, also, there's, there's a lot of inner um, imagination and imagery that's going on. So uh, whereas with music, this is something that uh, the person is experiencing continuously, um, they will hear this even if they're not paying attention to it. Uh, it's, it's a very helpful way to influence mood and to create calm uh, or to support different emotional states. So that, that's really where music is, is very powerful. It's, uh, it has the potential to affect implicitly uh, without focus, conscious focus, and also to support different kinds of emotion for the person uh, as they're undergoing this kind of therapy. Your company mentioned something about no magical pill. What do you guys mean by that? And why is the setting in the music design essential for a successful outcome in the therapy? Mm. Well, uh, so building on what we were just talking about, music has a great potential to help, but how to use music is is still a question mark. And certainly there are some practices that have been developed. A lot of people use uh, playlists, uh, classical music, other kinds of music that they, that they really enjoy. But as far as what's, uh, what the best parameters are for delivering just the right music for this participant, this, this patient or client, um, that is yet to be determined through research. And it's clear from all of this work that's been happening uh, in clinical settings and also research settings that not everyone benefits from the same music. Uh, so that is really what that means. It's not a magic uh, pill in that it, um, the, at least the music for, at least in terms of how the music is involved, it's not certain to work. Uh, the same kind of music won't work for everyone. As you can imagine, people have varying interests in music, varying tastes, uh, and also in different states of mind, we might like certain music more than others. 
uh, if you change your state of mind, you might prefer other music. So how do you tailor the music to the person in the moment? Um, that's really the, the clinical and scientific challenge here. I've actually met some people that say that they don't even like music. Mm. And it, it, for me, it's very interesting to hear that uh, because there's so many different dimensions of music. It doesn't really have to be with lyrics or popular. It can also be sound. Like I was in India uh, for a yoga retreat and then they have these, what they call it? The, you know, mm. there's a full sound. Mm. I mean, that is also extremely healing and it's i mean i love listening to it it's it, something happens in my body so it's, it's, it's really interesting to to understand uh, uh, what is it about sound that they don't like but at the same time i sometimes say that uh silence is is better than than having a lot of noise so i mean listening too much music can also be extremely stressful um, I got the chance to experience one of WayPath's deep listening sessions. It was a 30 minutes uh, session. And for me, it was like medicine to my soul. It was great because I did it middle of the day. I took a break and, and I really needed that. So tell us about WayPaths and, and the purpose and what you guys do and what is your role? Certainly. So WavePaths is a creation of Mendel Kalin, uh, who has a PhD from Imperial College London, uh, the first PhD to focus on music and psychedelics. Uh, he looked at the effect of psychedelics on the music experience and also uh, the effect of music on psychedelic therapies. In his research, uh, which included neuroimaging uh, as clinical populations, healthy populations. So, his insight uh, was that music is playing an incredibly powerful role. You could even look at psychedelic therapy as a kind of music therapy that enables music to do even more than it would normally. Uh, and as we were discussing, it's been used as an important setting variable uh, throughout much of the psychedelic therapy that's gone on through the ages. And that's across cultures as well. If you look at ayahuasca ceremonies, there, there's music involved and uh, look elsewhere, you'll see that drumming and music uh, plays a role in a lot of these kinds of ceremonies and, and um, we could call out those therapies. So, uh, how can we maximize the potential of this setting variable? That's really the goal of WavePaths is to say, let's get this right. Let's get the music right. So it's tailored to the individual, to the personal preferences of the individual for, for different kinds of music, to the personality factors of that individual. Uh, you know, some people may be open to a broader spectrum, spectrum of music. Some may be uh, may have preference for a narrower spectrum of, of musical styles. And basically to, to be able to respond, not just to those overall trait factors, you could say, but also to the state of the individual uh, in terms of you know, the goals of this particular session. Uh, maybe they're having multiple sessions or, or this session is aimed at uh, some kind of cathartic effect or some kind of common effect 
effect or whatever the effect that we're looking for with this session. And, and then also within the session, as it's evolving, looking at the state of the individual biometric state, the mental state, how can we figure out what's going on in, in the mind and physiology and neurophysiology of, of uh, this person in order to select just the right music that supports that state and also supports whatever the therapeutic goal is. So this is, these are the lofty ambitions of, of wave paths. And the way that the, the system works is, is to uh, take curated uh, music that's been contributed by uh, some wonderful composers uh, that create music just for this system and tailored to this system. Uh, and then an artificial intelligence uh, puts together those elements of music uh, in real time uh, to create this continuous sound space that's evolving with uh, the experience of, of the, the person that's undergoing the, the treatment. So is this like a product that the therapist will use or is it also a product like if I wanted to use it from, from home? It, it, it will be for both actually. So uh, if someone wants to have uh, a therapeutic musical experience, this will be available. Uh, for self-administering music uh, to uh, go through an emotional process. So that is going to be available uh, to the public soon. Uh, and also therapists. So uh, right now we already have a beta product that therapists are using. And that product is basically uh, something that the therapists take advantage of when they're working with their clients. So they will use the interface to deliver music, to change the music as needed over the course of a session, etc. Uh, so it's, it's set up, it has the intelligence necessary to do, uh, to, to be useful for clinicians, uh, but there will certainly be a version available as well for, for anyone who wants to take advantage of of the music and the therapeutic potential of, of that music. Do, do you have uh, your own musicians that you guys work with to add the music or wh where does the music come from? So it, it, it does come from uh, professional musicians, um, people like Brian Eno, a lot of wonderful uh, composers that, that create these sonic landscapes. And as mentioned, they're, they're licensed just for this platform. Uh, so the music will not be heard. These, these are musicians that have catalogs of music available on streaming services and, and albums and so on, but they're making the effort to create this music that's specifically intended for this therapeutic purpose within WavePaths. Okay, and that, that was going to be a little bit my other question is that uh, the past years, there have been a lot of apps popping up, uh, offering uh, e even, uh, I mean, I'm not going to mention names, doesn't matter, but there's like one that says that their, their music is based on neuroscience, and another one does a lot of commercial where it's like take, take a 20 minutes or 30 minutes pause during the day what makes them different than to what you guys are trying to achieve? 
Um, so the difference is all of these apps and, and um, music products may be very helpful. And, and as you're well aware, music therapy is very powerful for all of us. We're, we're likely self-administering musical medicine uh, throughout our lives in different ways, uh, whether we think about it consciously or not. The unique element of WavePass is this understanding that getting the music right in the context of a psychotherapy uh, or in particular psychedelic assisted therapy can make a huge difference for these kinds of therapeutic outcomes. And the system is set up to take into account variables related to the drugs involved. So uh, if you input that you're using ketamine, uh, it, the system knows, well, ketamine acts in this way. It has a certain duration of effect. It has a certain um, timing for how long it takes to really peak and then how long the, the peak is. And then when does the, uh, the experience start to return to normal, how long that takes. So it, it understands all of these based on the dose, uh, based on the way the dose is delivered etc. And that really enables you to, as a therapist, uh, create a session that's very specific uh, and not worry about it so much. Uh, so therapists have a lot to handle as it is. Uh, so this kind of takes one element off their plate, something they, they don't have to worry about so much. It's a, it's a tool in their tool belt that they can apply and have a lot of control over the the course of the music as it unfolds. Um, they can also create uh, emotional changes that are going to be oriented to the kinds of states that uh, the, the therapy is supposed to create for this individual in this session. What would be the long-term uh, purpose or, or vision? Is it that music in, in therapy, like you will take over, uh, you will treat people more and more with music while you understand it and really much like try to remove drugs or are we trying to see like a combination to, to make it a little stronger, uh, mm -hmm. make it more powerful and more effective? So a little bit of both. I, I would say it's um, definitely, it serves two purposes. One is safety, uh, so reducing uh, problematic experiences, so creating uh, a kind of safe structure in which these experiences can unfold. Uh, you know, one way you can think about music is as standing in for different systems in the brain or psyche. So with um, you know, Parkinson's disease music kind of is like a pacemaker for the motor system. It helps smooth and movement, uh, whereas that system is not functioning uh, as normal. Music helps to create that structure there. Uh, or you know, people with very advanced Alzheimer's, music can help uh, activate a sense of self. It, it can stand in uh, for the self and activate these memories. And, uh, and then in this case, well, where people are experiencing a loss of, or a disintegration of uh, 
the, the sense of self, in fact, uh, in the moment, the music may provide some structure in place of that. Uh, so it kind of acts as this holding uh, structure that, that provides a sense of continuity while the normal sense of I or the, 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 the singular separate entity is dissipating. Uh, so that may be, that's one hypothesis about what's going on here uh, and, and the way that it, it can really serve uh, to help people that are undergoing these therapies. So that's, that's really where uh, you know, WayPass is, is aiming to step in and just find the right music that, that is tailored to the individual in the moment as, as that moment is unfolding. Uh, also, uh, being that this is, uh, there, there's an artificial intelligence uh, that's built into this, it's layering this music in a continuous fashion so whereas a lot of uh, therapies use sequences of, of tracks, let's say uh, on you know, a, a recording device or a streaming service where there are kind of breaks, there's a beginning and end to each piece. With wave paths, it's a continuity. Um, so sometimes there's a fade to silence, but that's um, out of uh, you know, some artistic intent. Uh, but otherwise there's this continuity of sound. And when you're moving from one emotional space to another, when you're moving between the, you know, the, the, the contents, you know, provided by Greg Haynes or John Hopkins or one of the other composers, uh, there's a seamless movement. Uh, so the, the system is just kind of layering things and moving to the other emotional spaces. And that's, that's also very helpful to avoid any kind of break in the experience where it's somewhere you're, you're feeling like, where's the music? I think in, in, in this case, compared to uh, music and branding, I think definitely that uh, being subjective and personalized music is super uh, important. I actually read uh, 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 an article last year, was listening to the music you love will make your brain release more dopamine. And it was by Laura Ferrari, an associate professor in cognitive psychology in Lyon University. And I do believe that this is also a big success behind Spotify that you know personalizes your music experience uh, th there, something happens when we love uh, what we are listening to and also with spotify what it helps with is okay if you listen to this track what about this track and it's also a lot of based on on ai and you were a little bit mentioning it i know you're not into tech that much but it's interesting to understand a little bit more than uh, how you guys work with the personal experience and, uh, and how do you how do you work with the AI because it, it is said that AI is only as good as you teach it mm. yeah absolutely absolutely uh, definitely and and we've known about you know, music and and dopamine and the striatum and from the work of Robert Satori and and others uh, uh, in the in the world of music and neuroscience. So we do know that, and furthermore, music has been used as a mood induction technique for, for decades or perhaps you know, throughout human history, really. So we know this power of music. Um, and that brings us to the point, how can we use data uh, to really move uh, the needle here? How can we use it to um, make intelligent decisions in the moment? And that's a work in progress, really. Uh, it involves uh, 
identifying target states. Uh, so there are certain things we, or the field of psychedelic uh, assisted therapy research is figuring out, like what does it look like in the moment as the experience is, is underway uh, when someone is having an experience that is leading to a positive beneficial therapeutic outcome. And there have been some uh, interesting findings. So work at uh, Imperial College London by uh, Rodman Carhart Harris and, and colleagues and David, Nutt group, David Nutt's group there have, have, and others around the world have found an interesting correlation between how personally meaningful the experience is and uh, ther beneficial therapeutic outcomes. So it's interesting that intense states of transcend transcendence, this feeling of a loss of self and uh, very powerful and meaningful experiences like that, uh, the more someone has that, the more likely they are to benefit from, from the therapy. Uh, so that gives us some guidance. So how can then we use music to support arriving at those kinds of states? Uh, so it's really about identifying target states uh, that correlate with reported um, experiences, but also with physiology, neurophysiology, and then training the, the system to deliver music that leads a person in that direction. Uh, so it, that's really what we're aiming for. Who would you say then is the dream scenario? Like if it was Nevada in the research you do, what would be that Nevada finding? Yeah, and that gets back to your earlier question. So, so yes, music is uh, very helpful for uh, creating stability, um, for reducing the likelihood of adverse reactions, uh, creating calm where needed. Uh, but it also has the potential to enhance the in intensity and benefits of, of the therapy. So, uh, you're, you you raise the the idea that. Uh, with music, you might need less drug uh, to arrive at the same beneficial state. And this has been used in, in pain therapies, for example. There is um, pretty strong evidence that, that having music involved post-treatment, post-operative uh, treatments uh, uh, can lead to the need for less uh, analgesics. Uh, like morphine and so on. So there is that model where music can kind of play this role where you need less drug to achieve the same state. Perhaps the same thing can happen here. So music can help enable these states of uh, consciousness and, and experience that are therapeutically valuable with less drug. Um, and that of course reduces the chances of adverse reactions I think that the dream state actually from the perspective of wave pass is that music, the music is so good and so tuned in to what you need that, that you don't need any psychedelic drug actually to, to achieve the, the states that, that are really beneficial. And this goes back to ideas around, for example, you know, mother ease and you know, parent child vocalizations where uh, you know, the, the parent is vocalizing in ways that are continually attuning themselves to the child to keep the, the child in a state 
uh, a positive state. And can you imagine a system that's um, you know, tuned in to um, what you need and to deliver music that's just suited for arriving at, at states of mind and, and experience that, that are really helpful and, and beneficial? It's very interesting what you say, because what, what I believe in when it comes to medicine and depression and healing is why wait until we have the pain and we have the problem? Like music is a huge part of our life from the day we are birth and even in the stomach, because we can hear the, the heartbeat of the mother, that it can be used to not end up in depression or getting some kind of other mental health diseases in the future that we use it constantly in in our daily lives and that's how I see that music as, as I say it has saved my life is like everybody else uh, I was hit by depression when I or anxiety when I was 20 and working in the event industry I later on like 10 years later when I started doing music research I actually found out by myself it's like it music really helped me a lot and that I use it in my daily life it won't forever cure me because I will be suffering from anxiety uh, but I can use it as a tool whenever I feel bad to bring me up again and and this, what do you think about that? To use it constantly in your daily life to, to mm. prevent uh, mental health. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I think it's it's uh, definitely a powerful uh, you know, tool or a powerful uh, support uh, available to us, and well, we're surrounded by music and uh, access to music. And uh, we can take advantage of that, and it's uh, it definitely has these these effects implicitly. Uh, uh, we've talked about that in in the context of consumer neuroscience. Uh, music is influencing us, whether we are paying attention or not, and we can use that to our advantage and uh, find music that's soothing, find music that's energizing. I mean, this is it's part of sports you know, psychology now it's um, thinking about how to use music to get better outcomes for for athletes uh, and for people that want to calm down there's plenty of uh, playlists out there that that play calming music it's amazing how effective it is um, how much it it can change the way we're feeling and it's just now it's just a button press away but maybe making that leap or you know, trying it is, uh, there are still barriers to that. Uh, and especially when we're in a difficult state of mind, we don't think, we're not thinking well at those moments, we're not at our best to, to do what's help, most helpful for ourselves. Uh, so it's good to make these things available, as available as possible. And, uh, and, then, and then talking about it as well and keeping it top of mind. So maybe it will come to mind it's like, wow, I'm kind of feeling agitated. I feel so concerned about what's happening or what just happened. And, yeah, I could take a few deep breaths and, and listen to something interesting or put it on the background uh, just, to, just to create a, a different atmosphere for myself.
And, and before we're talking about in the con uh, context of consumer neuroscience that how a powerful music is when it comes to the memory and that is so interesting uh, when I saw a YouTube clip about a man that had Alzheimer's and he had not been able to communicate or move at all for years um, and then this team comes in and they ask his relatives so what kind of music did he listen to when he grew up what kind of music did he like when he was you know older and then they put together a, a tape uh and then they put on headphones on him and he's in the beginning like non-communicative and then when he starts listening you just see the eyes you know are, are becoming bigger and he's just more alert and then he starts talking he can even uh, respond to questions which he couldn't do he remembered things from his life which was more challenging and then on top of that now during that now the period of time i saw on instagram that is a video that is circulating and they accounted musica para desperata is it's a spanish where we can see like an ex-ballerina that has alzheimer's and she gets the chance to listen to swan music from where she was dancing and you can see instantly she's moving her hands she's dancing almost exactly well she's sitting down but with her arms like she did before and oof i get goosebumps by just talking about it so excited so explain to us this phenomenon right right yeah this is wonderful and i've seen that video and there, there's a wonderful documentary alive inside that uh explores music uh, the effect of music on people with advanced alzheimer's and that's a great uh, thing to see uh, if you can so so what happens with music is it has all these structural features that make it very sticky in the brain so to speak it has rhythm it has uh, melodic structure it has harmonic structure uh, and then when it has lyrics or, or vocals that can have uh, vocal timbre uh, and also lyrical structure, uh, so rhyming, just words themselves, patterns, imagery associated with the words. So all of these aspects of the music uh, basically are very uh, useful. They're like grip holds for the brain and the brain is constantly looking for pattern in information and building predictions and this enables music related memories to be very deeply ingrained uh, and you see this uh, it's, it's even when there's enormous degradation to the functioning of the brain uh, loss of so many other functions music can still access uh, the self uh, in people uh, with advanced alzheimer's for example and uh, it, it's, it really does create some of the most enduring memories and uh, nostalgia is very powerful with music in particular. It can trigger, uh, send us to a different time and place. Uh, so th this, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons music is such a, an interesting and powerful instrument, um, if you'll pardon the pun. So it, it also plays into psychedelic therapies in this way. Uh, there's uh, an integration process. So if you undergo uh, a psych psychedelic therapy session, uh, 
um, you will have some integration afterwards. So these experiences are often ineffable, hard to describe, and hard to remember. And afterwards, uh, usually part of the, the integration process is to remember everything that you, you experienced and try to kind of bring it into your, your life, uh, kind of like remembering dreams sometimes. But the, the music may help with that process um, because music, as we were just talking, creates these opportunities for tagging memories, uh, you know, just like you might hear music and you'll be transported to you know, some drive you were on cross country when that music was on the road or you know some event in your life that was meaningful uh, so too uh, having varied and interesting music during a session may act as uh, kind of a, a time series or give time stamps to these different experiences so when the person listens to that music after the fact it brings to mind, it helps to uh, create this recollection process that then can lead to greater insights and, and a stronger integration of, of the experiences. And now for our listener, uh, how can they themselves, at firstly at home, use music in, 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 in therapy during this pandemic? Uh, we have a lot of listeners probably are stuck at home uh, I mean, of course, a lot of people use music daily, but how can they use it in form of the ter therapy at home? So uh, for that, I, I think it's really about uh, making it accessible uh, to yourself. And um, uh, I think playing music is a really wonderful thing. Uh, there's plenty of research that, that shows that singing uh, creates many uh, positive physiological changes and creates makes us breathe uh, deeply for example and uh, that it can be very therapeutic to engage in creating music uh, and then listening listening to music that uh, that is that's going to be beneficial for us i mean one one thing in the world of music neuroscience research that's then really interesting to me is is that it really reveals neuroplasticity so learning of music has been a very interesting model for neuroplasticity that is looking at changes in the brain because there are people who didn't learn music how to play an instrument or something so you can take that adult and have them sit down at a piano and have them start learning a bit and then look at what's changing in the brain and uh, it's a very constrained kind of situation. You're looking at auditory motor associations, maybe auditory motor visual, if you're reading music. And with only uh, you know, 20 minutes of practice, researchers have seen measurable significant changes in brain function. Uh, so the brain is changing very quickly when someone is uh, practicing music in this case. But so too is the case that listening to music creates changes in the brain. You're recognizing patterns, you're developing expectations, you're responding emotionally. And so, uh, I mean, one thing just to think about is how malleable the brain is and what you're putting into it is having an effect. Just keeping that in mind a little bit may make us choose things that are slightly more beneficial. So just awareness, can make us more sensitive to what we're 
giving to ourselves and understanding that um, that that will influence us and have an effect going forward. That's amazing. And, and my advice would be as soon as you feel down, uh, use music as the uh, tool of, of trying to bring yourself up. And during this pandemic, as you mentioned, what the best I would say sitting at home is, you know, start uh, start learning how to sing or start up with an instrument that you never had time because you were so busy with commuting back and forward. Um, amazing. Thank you very much. And, and can I ask you, what are the next steps now for, for, for WavePath? Ah, so WavePath's uh, just released an update to uh, the clinician users that are using the, the beta um, uh, system, which is great. So now there's a, a, greater, a better interface. Early next year, there's going to be a release uh, publicly, so that where there's going to be an opportunity for more clinicians to utilize the system. At a, a later point, it'll be available to non-clinicians as well, and, and there will be an opportunity uh, for basically anyone to use the system. And so that's a big next step. Uh, beyond that, it's uh, furthering these uh, collaborations we have that we're fortunate to uh, be a part of uh, with the clinician scientists at, at these research institutions and, and also furthering our internal uh, iterative uh, research program. It's basically making music more diverse, uh, also uh, much more just a stronger prediction model for how the music will affect uh, states of mind. Uh, so that's an ongoing process internally as well. And, and for the listeners that are interested to learn more about WayPath and, and sign up and become a user where, and support even, where, where can they go? Uh, sure. So wavepaths.com uh, is the website. You can check that out. Uh, we have launched a CEDARS campaign, that's S-E-E-D-R-S campaign. It's a fundraising, uh, it can be micro fundraising or any, any amount of um, funds that, that would be as, a, as an investment. Uh, so if you wanted to actually be an investor in the company, that's an option. Uh, and uh, then, you know, just keeping an eye out, I think it's possible to get on the mailing list if you're interested in looking for being updated when there's a new release and this becomes available to the public. Amazing. Thank you very much, Bradley. This was once again an amazing uh, episode with you and we learned so much and I so much look forward to what's coming up in the research and, you know, for us to heal the world through music. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jasmine. It's such a pleasure speaking with you and uh, I really think it's fantastic you're bringing these ideas out uh, and sharing them with people. Well, that's all for today's episode of The Power of Audio, Science and AI. I'm Jasmine Moradi, your host, and thank you very much for listening. If you like this podcast and want to follow my journey towards discovering the secrets behind The Power of Audio, Science and AI, then make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing on my website, jasminemurray.com, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. 
and working towards increasing the value of music so that artists receive the fair share of the economic value they create in our society. So make sure to spread the word to your fellow brand leaders and business network through your social media. Stay tuned for my next episode where I will speak to my friend Thomas Liddy, head of AI at Music Map. We're going to talk about the emotional AI and music analyzers and documentation. This episode is supported by Stockholm Music City, recorded at the Pot Booth in the co-working space The Park in Stockholm. Music by Skirk.